According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we are in Proverbs chapter 3. If we hit it hard enough, we can wrap up Proverbs chapter 3 this morning. So before we do, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Ask God the Father to bless our time together to open the eyes of our understanding. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. We rejoice that you reveal yourself to us in this way. Thank you for the canon of scripture. Thank you for the church age, for gifted pastor teachers, for uh, the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, for all that you have designed. Father, we have no excuse. You have provided all things necessary for life and godliness. And Father, we thank you for that provision and we, we uh, look forward to learning what you teach us today. We thank you, Father, in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are in the conclusion of the chapter, which is main point 10 in the outline. The chapter concludes with a declaration of fundamental contrasts. The chapter concludes with a declaration of fundamental contrasts, verses 32 through 35. Four, the devious are an abomination to the Lord, but he is intimate with the upright. The curse of the Lord is upon the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Though he scoffs at the scoffers, he gives grace to the afflicted. The wise will inherit honor, but fools display dishonor. And so here we have the fundamental contrast that really define the the whole book of Proverbs. They define the whole Christian way of life. This is what you can expect if you serve the Lord walking in truth, and this is what you can expect if you serve yourself walking in in your arrogance. And so in these fundamental contrasts, we got through the first one last week, and we'll see if we can get through the second, third, and fourth ones today. But the fundamental contrast between the abomination and the intimate. The abomination and the intimate. Again, verse 32, it's the devious that are an abomination to the Lord but he is intimate with the upright. And there's a distinction to be found between wanting to push something away from you, so far away from you, you can't see it, hear it, smell it, think about it ever again. It is an abomination. The, the, the imagery in, behind the vocabulary, the Tokneva vocabulary of abomination is something that you want far from you. You are pushing it at a distance, pushing it far away as opposed to the intimate where you are hugging, all right? And some folks are huggier than others, but uh, we're hugging something. We're intimate with something. We want something close. And that's the proximity versus the distance. And, and in terms of the abomination, of course, we don't want to be defiled by the abomination. We push it to the distance for our own uh, cleanliness, for our own uh, holiness and purity and the issues of it there. All right? Secondly, The fundamental contrast between the house of the wicked and the dwelling of the righteous. The fundamental contrast between the house of the wicked and the dwelling of the righteous. Again, there's two different parallels that are taking place. The poetry of this is is extraordinary. And uh, when you look at these verses, we said the same thing last week with verse 32. The the devious are an abomination to the Lord, but he is intimate with the upright. And there's there's actually twin parallels going on there, right? When you're looking at 32, the one we highlighted was the parallel or the contrast between abomination and intimate, right? But what's the other one we could have highlighted is devious and upright. Do you see that in verse 32? There's another set of parallels in that verse that we didn't stress as much as we stressed in terms of abomination and intimate, but it's the category of devious and the category of upright. And that goes in tandem. That goes in tandem with uh, abomination and intimate. Because it's the devious that's, that's the abomination and it's the upright that's intimate. And so you really have, it's, it's, it's two threads that are in parallel there. It's the same thing in verse 33. It's easy enough to spot house of the wicked and, and dwelling of the righteous, right? House of the wicked and dwelling of the righteous. That's one of the contrasts that's in that verse. Quit looking at that. All right. I see all these confused looks on your faces. 
Okay. Crooked. That's the Elizabethan English. Oh, okay. In any event. All right, stop looking puzzled. I hate it when people look puzzled. So I don't look at people. I preach to the thermostat. All right, back on track. When you're looking at verse 32, there's devious and there's upright. What we have here, the formula for this is A-B-B-A. All right? A-B-B-A. What's Abba? Father, right, or a bad 70s music group. Abba, A-B-B-A, okay? That's the pattern, A-B-B-A, meaning that the A line, the first line, is parallel with the A line, the fourth line, and the middle two are the B-B parallel. So that's why in the middle of verse 32, you've got abomination to the Lord and intimate. Those are, those are paralleled. Uh, devious and upright, those are parallels or contrasts, right? Same thing in verse 33. There's a curse and there's a blessing, there's the house of the wicked, there's the dwelling of the righteous. And in verse 32, I'm sorry, verse 33 is not A-B-B-A, it's A-B-A-B. Following that? A-B-A-B, because it's curse of the Lord, which is the corollary to blesses the, uh, the dwelling of the righteous, cursing and blessing, all right? Cursing and blessing. We also have to contrast house of the wicked with dwelling of the righteous. All right, now I'll put this back up. Fundamental contrast between the house of the wicked and the dwelling of the righteous. So, understand, this is more than just one person. This is an entire household. The man personally, the man personally, we've been seeing personal effects. This whole chapter, we've been seeing personal effects. How you personally benefit when you're walking in wisdom. How you as an individual personally benefit. This expands it beyond your person to your whole household. The man personally and his household is either blessed or cursed by the Lord. Is either blessed or cursed by the Lord. Alright? Blessed or cursed. And it's not just you. It's your household as well. And this is, uh, I think, significant. And what we ought to consider in our own walk is how am I not only benefiting from the Word of God, but through me, how is my household benefiting through the Word of God? And it uh, comes down to Genesis 18, 19. Here's a passage we can take a look at. Genesis 18, 19. Why did God design humanity to be procreative? Why did God design humanity to birth the next generation in a tandem of a father and a mother to not only procreate, but also to bring up those children? <laughs> you know, There are animals that birth their offspring and then they don't raise their offspring. They boot them out of the nest pretty early and they raise themselves. Or they've got, they've got instincts that take over and they operate within creation on that basis. Uh, not a tremendous amount of parenting takes place when you're, you're kicked out of the nest at, at three days old or what, what have you. Okay? Different animals have different practices. But humanity has not just the birthing of the children, but the training of the children. And the training of the children is entrusted to the parents. And we're going to see that uh, in the book of Proverbs. But I go back to Abraham and I see a, uh, a responsibility that's here in Genesis 18, 19. And when God says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And we realize, this is rhetorical, he's asking himself the question. And uh, in verse 17, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham, what I'm about to do. And the two angels have already departed. He's not talking to them. He's talking to himself. And uh, so if you ever ask yourself these questions or consult with yourself, that's fine. Okay? You're not weird. Uh, you're, uh, that's normal. Now, um, but he says, since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be a blast. In other words, he is the recipient of my unconditional Abrahamic covenant. He is my steward. He has stewardship responsibilities. And what goes with stewardship responsibilities is revelation, information, understanding the mind of God. And so he says, for I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household. 
The household is what's significant because that's what connects us in what we're looking at today in Proverbs chapter 3. The tent or the household of the righteous. For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. It's the idea of a household, all right? And so you want to maintain your household under biblical terms. Are you training up your household? Are you training up your children? And more than just children in a household, by the way. This would include servants and slaves and staff and anyone connected, your business dealings, anyone that you are in, in uh, doing business with, that your household may be in partnership with other households in that regard. So a, a man personally and his household collectively is either blessed or cursed by the Lord. What happens if you've got one believer and one unbeliever? Can you still bless your household? 1 Corinthians 7 says, yes, you can. First, you know, ideally, you don't marry an unbeliever, but um, if you are in a, a, a mixed marriage or an unequally yoked circumstance, 1 Corinthians 7 explains this. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 through 14. To the rest... To the rest, all right? To the rest, I say, in verse 12, it's to the unmarried and to the widows in verse 8, to the married in verse 10, and now to the rest, I say, in verse 12, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. Now, this can happen in different ways if maybe two unbelievers get married and then one gets saved, okay? Uh, Or... A carnal believer who should know better marries an unbeliever anyway, and then he gets back in fellowship and returns back to the light and starts growing again. Now he finds himself married to uh, an unbeliever. And what are the consequences of that? Or it might be the other way around. It might be a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her. So here it again, you're going to have a household, you're going to have a daily life, you're going to have family life. How does that operate when you've got, uh, uh, you know, you've got divine norms and standards and he doesn't? Or uh, the husband's got norms and standards and the wife doesn't. And he wants to operate his household on biblical terms and, and she would rather not operate on biblical terms or vice versa. You understand? Well, the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife. This is huge, okay? It doesn't mean saved. It doesn't mean he gets an automatic pass to eternal life because he married a believer. No, but there is a sanctification. There is an experiential sanctification. Temporal life blessings, what sometimes is referred to as the blessing by association. He's going to benefit because his wife is saved and she's walking that way according to the Word of God. Likewise, the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband that uh, she can benefit by the fact that she has a spiritual leader in her home, even if she doesn't appreciate that spiritual leadership. It goes on to say, otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. And that is the most unusual language for a church-age passage you're ever going to come across. The idea of clean versus unclean we expect in Leviticus, we expect in the Old Testament, we expect as it applies to uh, ceremonial uh, cleanliness for uh, uh, observance of some kind of shadow ritual. All right, But here it's in a church age context with reference to personal family life. How do I have clean versus unclean in my household on a church age basis as a royal high priest in the Melchizedek priesthood in Christ? Well, this is a passage that starts to address some of that. In any event, there is a benefit here to even one believing parent Even one believing parent, better with two, obviously, but with one believing parent, a household can be sanctified, a household can be cleansed, and children will benefit on that basis. If that makes sense. I even have a theory, can't prove it, but it's a concept, that uh, that this will also be the criteria at the rapture. That uh, which children get raptured, see, and, uh, of course, there's some that say every child gets raptured if they're beneath the age of accountability. But I believe this passage gives us an indicator as far as the children, I'm talking the infants, the newborns, those that are below the age of accountability. If they have a believing parent that is raptured, they too will be raptured. 
if they're the children of two unbelievers, then they will stay behind to enter into the millennium and they will be the prime evangelism target in the, in the tribulation of Israel. That uh, children will be the ones that will be saved in greater numbers than adults in the, uh, in the tribulation of Israel. Anyway, additionally, beyond the, uh, the household issues here, what's the distinction that we should draw between a house and a tent? What's the distinction we should draw between houses and tents? Why does the language change? Why is it that the wicked lives in a house, but the righteous has a non-house dwelling? <laughs> okay? We can think of it as a tent. It's a tent attitude. The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. There is a contrast drawn between houses and non-house dwellings. You can think of it as tents which ought to spur our eternal perspective. And this is not the only passage of the Bible that draws that contrast. We've got uh, Hebrews 11 that draws that contrast. We've got 2 Corinthians 5 that draws that contrast. 2 Corinthians 5 and Hebrews chapter 11. In fact, I'll take those in a backwards order. Hebrews 11, verses 9 and 10. I think there's a mindset that, uh, that, that ought to, or an attitude that ought to shape our thinking if we're going to have thinking that correlates with the, uh, the Word of God. Hebrews 11, verses 9 and 10, the attitude that Abraham had. Paragraph begins in verse 8, By faith Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. When God called Abraham in the Ur of Chaldees, he did not know where he was going, but he went by faith. All right, to the land which I will show you. And you'll know it when you get there. Okay? And talking about faith. He didn't know where he was going. And when he got there, was he immediately given everything? No, when he got there, he found there's a bunch of Canaanites living in the land of Canaan. He even had to pay cash for the, the burial plot for his wife and himself and he uh, purchases this cave and he pays cash for it. Why is he paying money for what's already his? Because well, it's his by promise, but not yet in fulfillment. And so by faith, he lived as an alien. And this, this is our pattern. We should have the faith of Abraham. We should live the faith of Abraham as an alien in the land of promise. We're aliens in a land that's not our own. We're waiting to go to heaven. As in a foreign land, Dwelling in tents. Here's this dwelling in tents. And there's the pattern. Okay, He's not going to settle in a location. He's not going to build a, a palace. He's not going to build a house, a permanent fixed location. The idea of a tent is that it's not permanent. It's not fixed. It's going to move from place to place. It's the simplicity of a pilgrim who's living with a tent and an altar. And that's the pattern of Abraham. What's our attitude? What's our attitude? Okay. Do we have this mindset that we are pilgrims, that we are aliens, that this world is not our home? I think there's an attitude here we should be we want to emulate. So it says, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. Isaac, then Jacob, okay? Decades are passing, generations are coming. How long does this promise take? Well, they're going to die in faith, not seeing the fulfillment of what has been promised, but still knowing that it is on the way. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. All right, he's looking, he's looking, and he will yet receive it. He will yet receive it. He will have a city on the millennial earth, and we got studies on that as well. But knowing that God made the promise, God will fulfill the promise. And in the meantime, I'm to walk by faith. I'm to have an attitude that this world is not my home. And so we have a contrast between houses and non-house dwellings, as in temporary dwellings, tents, in the language of Hebrews chapter 11. I know the word tent doesn't show up in Proverbs 3, but it is a different term than a house that we have there in Proverbs chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, again, here's a contrast that's being drawn between a tent and a house. What are we saying? 
you're not allowed to buy a house in the church age. <laughs> if you buy a house in the church age, you're violating this principle. I'm not saying that. But when you do become a homeowner, what goes with that? Are there attachments? Are there obligations and duties? Are there um, other things that coincide? All right. Less flexibility, isn't it? As opposed to uh, uh, non-house dwellings, whether it's tents or RVs or renting or whatever you're doing. All right, 2 Corinthians 5, we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from, that's a non-tent structure, from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And in the imagery, when you're contrasting a tent with a house, is you're contrasting the temporary with the permanent. A tent is not a permanent dwelling. Ask Joe and Carol if they're going to stay in that RV forever. All right? That's only in the meantime while the house is being built. <laughs> and the longer that takes, you know, the, well, it is what it is. Okay? I lived in a tent for six months. I will be very happy to never do that again. Okay? It's just, uh, it's, 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 it's a way to trick yourself that you're indoors when you're really not. You're outdoors still. You just have canvas over, over top. But you're still outdoors. All right, tents don't have doors. They have flaps. All right. Where am I? 2 Corinthians 5. If the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down. And when we did study this in 2 Corinthians, we know this is talking about our physical body. The fact that, that uh, all it is is a tent. It's not designed to be a permanent dwelling. It's not designed to be eternal. Even Adam in his sinlessness, the body that Adam and Eve had was not eternal. It was a tent, an earthly tent, made from the dust, right? And it will be torn down. No tent lasts forever. We have a building. This is a permanent structure. A house not made with hands. That it is, it's not human built. Anything man-made is going to be uh, is going to have problems, right? Anything man-made is imperfect, because made by the hands of man tells you that it is it's not perfect. But anything God made from God's hands, so it's a house made without hands, eternal in the heavens. It's an eternal house. It's one that uh, you know that's incorruptible. Un, uh, Undefiled. It's a, it's a body made after the image of the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. And that groaning, right? You know, as things creak. They get older. They get older. You have an older house. It makes more noise than the newer houses. But guess what? Eventually that newer house, it'll start making those older creaky noises. And same thing with our physical bodies. We groan. Some of us are developing some very impressive soundtracks that uh, when, we, when we sit down, there's a uh, kind of sound that we make when we sit down. And then when we stand up, sometimes there's a uh, and we stand up. And why do we have those soundtracks that go with our... It's, it's the groaning in this house. Point being... Man, is it going to be good when we get there? It's going to be good when we get there. I'm missing my mother today. I don't know why. It's uh, it's not her birthday. It's not Mother's Day. It's not anything except it is April Fool's Day. And I had the best mother ever in the history of the world. The most gullible, trusting, innocent, sweet. You could convince her of anything. And, and, and then pull the April Fools, and then and she, oh, you got me, you got me. And then, and then do it six more times before dinner on, on totally different topics. I mean, there was just no limit. Let's go to verse 34. <laughs> Proverbs 3.34. The fundamental contrast between the proud and the humble the fundamental contrast between the proud and the humble. And this is what gets quoted in James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5. All right, but it starts off here. It's not just that he opposes the proud, 
And that's how it gets rendered when it's brought into Greek and kind of idiomatically translated in the Septuagint and the New Testament and so forth. But the basis of that concept, I think, is much sharper than just being opposed to the proud. Right? The idea of opposed. You know, are you for something or are you against something? But it's more than that. It's more than just being opposed. It is actually treating them in a commensurate judgment way. What uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum coined when he talks about like for like in kind. That's how God administers discipline. Like for like in kind. And so for the scoffers, he scoffs at the scoffers. In other words, he turns it around and he himself scoffs at the scoffers. That he deals with them in the manner commensurate, only reversed, commensurate to the manner that they deal with his children. So he scoffs at scoffers. And this is significant. He scoffs at scoffers. And the uh, think about how he defends his children. Think about every attack you come under. Understand what that recompense is going to be like for the one that's attacking you. This is why when we talk about double compound discipline, the, the theory of, uh, or the doctrine, the teaching of how God turns these things back. It comes from, these, from this passage, from concepts like this. Like for like in kind. All right, so we have scoffers. And scoffers, um, these, are the, these are the proud, these are the know-it-alls, these are the, the folks that, that are so scornful of, of those they view inferior. They're not as smart as you, they're not as wise as you, they don't know what, you know, it's, it's the whole dismissive attitude. And we experience it constantly. It's now actually being woven into the, into the fabric of our culture <laughs> to the point now we are the enemy. We are the villains. And well, who is the scoffer anyway? Okay, We're not to sit in the seat of the scoffer. We're not to walk in the way of the wicked. But God scoffs at the scoffer. That's why he who sits in the heavens laughs. He turns it back on them and he applies it to them in his judgment. In his divine discipline judgment. But he gives grace to the humble or to the afflicted. Who are they afflicted by? They're afflicted by the scoffers. So don't you know, we count it all joy when we encounter these various trials. We don't, um, we pray for them. We love our enemies. We don't take vengeance ourselves. That's in God's hands. Let's look at James chapter 4. You know, the, uh, so many applications here. You adulteresses, verse 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? When you're a born-again believer in Jesus Christ, you are on His side of this angelic conflict. And to, uh, to, uh, to, to dally with the things of this world to, to try to... Some folks try to have a foot on both sides of the fence. They try to... Oh, it's just adultery. Spiritual adultery. God expects exclusive love, exclusive devotion, as any husband would. And if you start serving the world and loving the world and loving the things in the world, if you fail to maintain the distinctions between the holy and the unholy, God counts that as adultery. Friendship with the world is enmity or hostility toward God. And there's no reason for it. You, are, you, you were in an adversarial relationship and then He saved you. So why do you now, after you're saved, put yourself in a spot where you're going to be subject to His hand of discipline? Hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You are self-manufactured in that capacity. That ought to be clear. We're not, you don't lose your salvation. You don't go back to being an unbeliever. You're not a true enemy, but you are a self-made enemy. That you are lining yourself up for God's discipline just like those that you're in bed with. Okay? Metaphorically speaking. Do we want to be friends of the cosmos? We want to be friends of God. Abraham was a friend of God. We want to be friends of God. This cosmos is passing away. 
But there are folks that want to be a friend of the world. And, and, and this passage says that's dangerous. God is not well pleased with that. God counts that as adultery and you will be in an, in an enmity, in an adversarial position where you will receive that hand of divine judgment. Okay? What is friendship anyway? Rapport? Fellowship? Um, you know, do you, have, do you have something in common with darkness? What does light have in common with darkness? What, is, what does Christ have in common with Belial? What does the holy have in common with the unholy? And then too many people come along and they're, and they're confusing agape love, unconditional integrity love, with phileo, with, with rapport and in, intimacy and fellowship. You can't have any of that with darkness. So, um, do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? <laughs> Does God mean nothing when He says it? And then when He says it and He puts it in writing, do you think He really means nothing there? Is the Scripture without purpose? So many things. We saw it in Galatians. Paul said, you make the cross of Christ void. Really? Do you want to make the cross of Christ void or meaningless? Do you want to invalidate the cross of Christ with your legalism? Do you want to invalidate the Scriptures with your compromising with the world? If God bothered to put it in writing, then we better pay attention. He does not speak to no purpose. He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. He jealously desires the Spirit which He has made to dwell in us. What did He do when He saved us? What did He do when He cleansed us? What did He do when He married us? When He espoused us to His Son as pure virgins? What is, the, what is the purpose of our salvation? And we want to just reject all that and go wallow in the filth? Like the sow that returns to the mire? We want to do that? You know, when you, when you understand the, the amount, what He did in sacrificing His Son to purify us, it becomes unthinkable. So he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. And he gives a greater grace. This is why we get saved and we build on that. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And we have this paraphrase. Theological interpretation of Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 34. It's not word for word but it's inspired by the same Holy Spirit that inspired Proverbs, so we accept it as, as true. He is opposed to the proud as an adversary. Enmity. You're an enemy of God. He is going to direct fire. All right, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. I think the problem that most compromisers have is they're not submitting to God. They want to maintain a friendship they, whatever, for whatever reason. They've got, they've got a sin that easily entangles them or an encumbrance that easily entangles them or whatever it is. There is something they're not going to let go. And it's that friendship with the world that they won't let go of puts themselves in an adversarial relationship and it's just a defiance. They are not submitting to God. Oh, I can't let this go. I can't do it. Yes, you can. Don't say that you can't. Can't's not the language of a believer. And there is not one of you that has left father or mother or sister or brother or whatever for my sake and not received back many more times. The body of Christ is infinite and eternal and glorious. Well, some folks don't want to do it, so they're not going to submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Anyway, there's so much more here. The... um, they're not submitting to God. They're not resisting the devil. They're resisting God. They're submitting to the devil is what they're doing. They're forming friendships with the world. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. <laughs> you say, well, this doesn't sound fun. I didn't say it was fun. But submit to God. It will glorify Christ. It will lay up treasure in heaven. You'll be better for it when you're done, and it's better sooner than later. You're just making it worse. The longer you delay, the longer you delay, the longer you delay. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. 
Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. He will exalt you. So we have a fundamental contrast here between the proud and the humble. For you personally, for your household. For your household, all right? 1 Peter 5, 5. Another New Testament author that brings in the uh, Proverbs 3 application here. You younger men likewise. Younger men likewise. Now what's that likewise about? Okay, That likewise means you go back and you see everything that's there in verses 1 through 4. Because it also applies to you. This is how Peter likes to write. Peter will write a, a long paragraph and then he'll move to his next subject and he'll throw a likewise in there. You husbands likewise. Right? It just bugs me to tears when feminists think that God's picking on the women. And uh, because there's six verses there in, in 1 Peter 3, there's six verses there where the women are being addressed to, uh, to be humble and to uh, submit to their husbands and all that. But then in verse 7, it says, you husbands likewise, or you husbands in the same way. This is very much Peter's style, right? What does that mean? That means you husbands also, you apply everything in verses 1 through 6 as it pertains to you. Turn it around, apply it in your perspective. What if you are a believing husband and you've got an unbelieving wife? Then all those six verses apply to you also. Plus, now we're going to pile on and give you an additional responsibility. So uh, husbands also have to deal with verse 7. The women only get verses 1 through 6. The men get verses 1 through 7. So that's not exactly misogynistic or anti-women or what have you. Same thing here in 1 Peter. You younger men likewise. Everything that precedes that in verses 1 through 4, take it, find the application that applies to you, and then add to it now verse 5. And so what do we have in verses 1 through 4? We have humility. Peter says in verse 1, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, notice, but voluntarily according to the will of God. Compulsion is never according to the will of God. Voluntary is. God loves the cheerful giver, not grudgingly or under compulsion, but as a man has purposed in his heart, so let him give. For God loves the cheerful giver. Same thing with your service. Voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. You're not in it for the money. You're not serving God to get rich. Christianity is not about what have you done for me lately, and if you uh, scratch my back, and then I'll scratch yours, but if you stop scratching my back, and then I'm out of here. I'm going to find another religion, another church, another something that does something for me. Okay? And here we are in the generation of felt needs. Churchianity is all about my felt needs, and if it doesn't do it for me, well then, then one down the street will. I'll find someone that do- find somebody that does. So you're not in it for the money, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. That's why it has to be humility. The arrogant pastor is doomed. Nor yet as lording it over those. Notice allotted to your charge. Humble yourself, man. They're not your sheep. They've been allotted to you, but who's the allotter? (laughs) It doesn't say lording it over those that you accumulated to yourself, those you've earned and deserved, those you've attracted, those you've impressed. You've built this great church empire because you're the, the greatest orator since whoever. You don't have the ones you earned or deserved, the ones you got for yourself, the ones that are all impressed with you. You got the ones that He allotted to you. However many or however few, whichever ones He's given you, they're not yours, they're His. Because He has allotted them to your charge. He has allotted them to your delegated responsibility. You answer to Him if you're not shepherding them the way that he wants you to, because he's the good, the great, and the chief shepherd. To those allotted to your charge. 
This is so huge. This is criteria number one for church attendance. What church should you be attending? Well, to which shepherd have you been allotted? Don't look at the nursery. Don't look at the Sunday school. Don't look at the music program. Don't look at the, uh, the, the entertainment and whatever, whatever, all the programs, all the blah, blah, blah. You realize that you are a sheep, you are a soul, and the great shepherd has allotted you to an under-shepherd. That's criteria number one. Allotted to your charge. But proving to be examples to the flock. So you're not lording, you're proving. You're exemplifying. In humility, you are living the word of God and setting the example. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. The shepherd answers to the chief shepherd. All right, but it's about humility. So then it says, you younger men likewise. The reason why the shepherd should be setting the example so that the flock will follow that example. Be subject to your elders and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Day by day by day, ask yourself, am I struggling with my humility? Am I clothed with humility? Or am I still wearing a little bit of arrogance? You know, do I have the full arrogance costume or am I down now to, you know, I've got less and less arrogance and more and more humility, but I still have a a belt or a hat. I've got some arrogant accessories I still maintain. Dump those too to clothe yourself with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. And here's the Again, the imperative drawn out of Proverbs chapter 3. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you right now, of course, because God's just as impatient as you are. No, that's not what it says. God may exalt you at the proper time. At the proper time. And for most of us, that exaltation won't happen until the trumpet sounds. You know, people are craving temporal exaltation. What for? How about eternal exaltation? How about well done, good and faithful servant in heaven when I don't have a sin nature anymore to get puffed up over something like that? (laughs) Okay? Temporal exaltation will just go straight to my head anyway. I don't want any of that right here and now. No, thank you. But exalting you at the proper time? All right. When he sees fit. When he sees fit. All right, this is the fundamental contrast between the proud and the humble. Finally, the fundamental contrast between the wise and the fool. The last verse of Proverbs 3 and the fourth of these fundamental contrasts between the wise and the fool. We've already seen it. It's been in the earlier chapters. It's going to be in nearly every chapter of Proverbs. The wise will inherit honor, but fools display dishonor. (laughs) Put that on a, man, that's, that's, that ought to be a verse for YouTube. I've seen so much dishonor displayed on YouTube and on the, all these videos get shared around. And, Ooh, look at this, look at this. Let's show the world what a fool I am. Hmm. Now they got these cameras and these cameras are synchronized they're already on a wi-fi network or they're on a data network somewhere these cameras have you know they're already any any picture the moment it's snapped posted on youtube and goes global before you know it or snapchat or any of these other things instagram and some of this other stuff that i don't know a whole lot about but my my daughter sure does (laughs) all right contrast between the wise and the fool honor and dishonor The contrast here that comes back in Romans, comes back in 1 Corinthians. The contrast we've studied already in previous book studies. This should be a good reminder for you. Romans chapter 1, the world in which we live. Romans chapter 1. kind of interesting somebody the other day was saying well when's god going to get around to apologizing to sodom and gomorrah why does he uh why has he not blasted us like he blasted them well you think he's not do you think his wrath is not yet exercised i think we're already under his wrath 
And I think in the church age, the wrath of God is far worse than the Old Testament wrath of God. In so many ways, Old Testament wrath, fire and brimstone, is very merciful. Fire and brimstone is, uh, is uh, such that it cuts short a whole lot of other darkness that would have gotten even worse. The fact that uh, he's not devastating us with fire and brimstone means he's giving us over to a depraved mind, and that is far worse as a present application of the ongoing wrath of God. So it says in verse 18, the wrath of God is presently now revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It is an ongoing revelation like the gospel is the ongoing revelation. The verses prior to that talk about the gospel. Paul's not ashamed of the gospel. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed. So two things are being revealed in this chapter. The righteousness of God is being revealed when we communicate the gospel, but the wrath of God is being revealed as men suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. God made it evident to them. When you act contrary to creation, when you act contrary to nature, you're suppressing the knowledge of God. You're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. So, without excuse, as it says in verse 20. Verse 21, even though they knew Him, they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. Here's that honor. Or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And this is the worst kind of foolishness at all, rejecting God's wisdom, embracing Satan's wisdom, calling that the true wisdom, and you are an eternal fool. Exchanging the glory of the incorruptible God for the image in the form of corruptible man, of birds, of four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Exchanging the glory of what God provided. Exchanging eternal pleasures for temporal whatever. Hmm. Therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. That's far worse than fire and brimstone. That's far worse than devastating Sodom and Gomorrah. They should have learned from the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. So their bodies would be dishonored among them, exchanging the truth of God for a lie, worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. And sadly, the number one creature most folks are worshiping is themselves or their own uh, body parts. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Well, we'll go back into that. I think I preached that last week. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 33. You know, he will exalt you at the proper time, and it likely won't be in time. The proper time will be outside of space and time in the eternal glory of Jesus Christ. Notice verse 25 says, The foolishness of God is wiser than men. The weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brethren, there were not many wise according to the flesh. Not many wise. You know, you talk about all the pure geniuses in uh, all their PhD science and that. There are some born again, but they are the minority compared to all the smart people that are going to hell. Not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Okay? Now there are some. Not to say that if you're smart you can't get saved. There are some, but it's not many. It's the minority. Likewise the rich. There are some. And God has tasked them with giftedness for giving and, and, and provision for, for supplying the needs of others and so forth. There are some mighty and so forth. Not many. Some noble. Not many. But God has chosen the foolish things, the weak things, the things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are. Chosen the weak things to shame the things that are strong, the base things and the despised. This is what it is. The scoffers are scoffing because they're despising what they're scoffing at. But God has chosen the base things and the despised. The things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are. 
And all these people that think they've got something to commend themselves, they're very impressed with themselves, and so they assume that God's also impressed with them. <laughs> well, why wouldn't he be? I'm, I'm impressed with me. Well, God must be impressed with me too. And it's, uh, it's just a satanic assumption, and they're wrong every time. Not impressed with you any more than he was impressed with God's, with uh, Cain's vegetables or anything else. Any other false approach to anything. So that no man may boast before God. You know, God didn't make me a pastor because he just couldn't help himself and said, oh, look at him. He's so smart. He's so special. I just got to make him a pastor. I can't help myself. He picks the biggest fools he can find so he can encourage everybody else to say, wow, look at that. Look at that knucklehead. Look what God is doing with that guy. And that ought to be an encouragement for everybody. All right. So by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Look at that. We get to be in Christ. Christ in us, the hope of glory. There's the wisdom of God. We're gonna, we'll, get, we'll see that in Proverbs 8. The wisdom of God, the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth, the begotten wisdom. Today I have begotten thee. And that begotten wisdom dwells in us. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The life that I now live, I live by faith. It's no longer I who live. Christ lives in me. I'm going to throw that away for, for what? For the world? For the world's wisdom? Who became not just wisdom, oh, more than that, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Notice all the geniuses of the earth that they, they, they have all this wisdom. Is that producing a righteousness? Is it producing a sanctification? Is it producing a, a, uh, a redemption? No. Their system of wisdom doesn't need any of that. So then, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And we can appreciate that as well. All right. That wraps up chapter 3. We will come back and move into chapter 4 after our two-week break. Remember you have the next two weeks off. Are you still going to meet for prayer? All right. Still meeting for prayer. All right. But no life of, uh, life of, no Proverbs class. I'm going to rename this the life of Proverbs. (laughs) I keep starting with life of We'll come back for Proverbs in three weeks. So we'll be off, uh, we'll miss two, and be back for the third, whenever that ends up being. The 19th, the 22nd. We'll be back on the 22nd for our next Proverbs class. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness. Thank you for this time together. Thank you for brothers and sisters and hunger for righteousness, Father. You are so faithful in, in your grace provision. Help us to understand this, this truth, to, uh, to live this truth, Father, that it will become a reality in, in not only what we do, but how we think and even the attitudes that shape our, our thinking. We want to have the mindset of the humble, Father, the mindset of the humble so we don't plunge into arrogant thinking and arrogant deeds. Thank you, Father, for making these things clear to each one of us. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.